is just like the tour guide extraordinaire for the for the host committee and uh, Sherry was much impressed with him and uh, so but we did get to talk for a few minutes uh, I listened to her tape the other night and um, <clears throat> the one thing I did notice is that we both talked pretty fast but uh, she had a wonderful message then and I know she'll have a wonderful message for you tonight and with that I give you Sherry R from Fort Worth Texas Hi, my name is Sherry and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is May 29th, 1988, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, and I want to thank the committee for inviting me and Burns. Burns has gone to a lot of trouble. I flew here on American. <laughs> and uh, he's really trying to make sure I get back. Uh, but I did notice that the first thing Bruce did was take me to two universities. So if I don't get back, I know where to go look for a job. Um, uh, but he has, Burns has really gone to a lot of trouble to make sure that we don't have too much of an adventure after. And, um, and, uh, and Bruce did take us on quite a little tour around the city. He picked us up from the airport, and I appreciate that. And Loretta's just been wonderful. She called me, and it's been just so great. This is a great conference. You all have, obviously have it very well organized, and you, you're very uh, thoughtful. Um, there was a beautiful, perfect rose in our room uh, sent by the committee, which was just it was just beautiful. It was so nice. You need to go to a hotel room and it's all just like, you know, generic and have something beautiful in there meant a lot to me. And uh, thank you for the fruit basket also. That that was my dinner. And I uh, appreciated that too. And um, Laura shared her sandwich with me wherever you went. Thank you, Laura. Um, I want you to know that uh, I found out, you know, I, I guess you just come to AA with whatever values you have. At least I did. Uh, I just came with the values I had and I was so self-centered when I got here that I thought the values I had were the values everybody had. And after I was a couple of years sober, I found out that what was important to me was not important to a lot of women. Uh, I wanted to be cold, hard, and mean. And that was what I wanted. And I found out there were a lot of women in AA who did not want to do that. And I want you to know that it's embarrassing to me a little bit to say that about two years ago, I found out there's a lot of men in AA who don't want to do that either. And uh, so I, there are just a lot of people who don't share those values, but they're the values I had when I got here. Uh, and uh, when I was a kid, uh, what I did was I did... I, before I drank, I was scared a lot, and I, I really didn't know that, and I wasn't willing to admit that for a long time because as far as I was concerned, that was the weakest, worst thing you could be would be to be scared and weak, and I didn't want to be that. But I really was that until I started drinking, and one of the things that alcohol did for me was it just, you know, I've never quite know how to explain this. It's just like I just had this madness in my head, and when I drank, it just sort of calmed it all down. You know, it's like having all these guys up there all screaming at one time and you can get them all drunk and a bunch of them pass out and you kind of try to get through the day you know I mean it was sort of like that and it would just kind of go you know just and all of a sudden you know I'm kind of a little tougher and you're not quite so tough and everything's a little more okay and uh, and because alcohol did that for me and I don't remember you know when I started drinking I did not go well this is wonderful this makes life better I believe I'll just do this on every occasion you know, it wasn't like that but looking back I know that that's what happened. You know, looking back, I can see what that did. And one of the things that happened to me when I started drinking was that I wasn't afraid anymore, and I didn't have to kind of hide in corners anymore, and I decided instead of being the victim, I was going to be the perpetrator. That looked like a much better way to be. And I started just doing whatever I wanted to do. And the book says that the problem that I suffer from is that I'm selfish and self-centered, and that's exactly what happened to me. I just started doing whatever I wanted. I went where I wanted to go. I did what I wanted to do. I took any, you know, if you had something I wanted, I just took it. And if you had something I didn't want, I just took it anyway. 
you know, I, uh, I once stole 126 turn signal levers. You know, I don't know why. I, I don't even remember needing one of them, but I, you know, and uh, the thing I've never quite understood is why I counted them, but, <laughs> you know, just the kind of stuff I was spending my time doing out there, and, uh, and I, you know, I just, that's just kind of how I was. Um, I did not like being here. Um, when I was sober, I, this was not a good place to be. I just didn't want to be here on the planet, and uh, I tried to kill myself periodically, and I obviously wasn't very good at that. Here I am. And uh, when I was in, I did not plan to live very long. Um, when you don't plan to live very long, you're not careful about a lot of stuff. I've said recently that if I'd known that I was going to keep this body for this long, I would have been a lot better to it. You have a lot of broken places, and they hurt when it rains. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I didn't know that, so I was just out there doing stuff. And when I was in high school, I had this experience. Um, you know, I was just on this dead end road, and uh, I went by as I was walking down here earlier. There was like this convention of English teachers up there, and. Uh, <laughs> And I, I just kind of warmed my heart because an English teacher was one of those people at kind of one of those turns in the road that just helped me make a turn. And this English teacher had, uh, which, what happened was she just, for some reason, she took an interest in me. And I want you to know there were a lot of teachers who were not interested in me when I was in high school uh, because I was just the kind that drive them nuts, you know, because I didn't come to class and I didn't do the work and I was always in their face. And this particular English teacher, for some reason, liked me and she would invite me over to her house. She let me stay there sometimes. So I didn't have any place to stay. And uh, she let me drink at her house. And that was, you know, my basic criteria for being my friend. And she paid, <laughs> which was really pretty nice. And uh, one day she started talking to me about going to college. Now, I wasn't going to high school. So we were not having a lot of, a lot of conversations about going to college. You know, I was not on the fast track. And, uh, but she would just, even though know, it's like I, she, I'd walk in her room and she'd go, why don't you go to college? I was like, yeah, right, you know. Now, I don't know about you, but the kind of person I am, if you do something like that with me once or twice, then, I, then, then that's how it is. And then the next time I come in, you know, you're supposed to say that, and then I go no, and then we have, you know, that's what we do. And so one day I walked in, and uh, she didn't say, why don't you go to college? She said, you know, a lot of people don't think you could make it in college, and they're probably right. <laughs> I said, I could make it. She said, no, nah, I don't think so. She said, you know, you're smart, but you got this attitude, and, you know, you just got no discipline. And I said, I could do it. So I went to college on a dare. <laughs> you know, and I was this kind of kid I was. You know, if you wanted, me to, if you wanted me to do anything when I was a kid, you just go, chicken? I'm no chicken, I'll do it, whatever it is, you know. I have chipped teeth because I drove off a three-meter diving board into an inner tube one time because somebody said I was too scared to do it. I said, I'll do that, you know. And uh, so anyway, so I went to college. I, I, had, I had no idea what college was going to be like. Nobody took me aside and said, excuse me, you're about to be a co-ed. There's a few things you need to change. I just went the way I was. And uh, the way I was was I had my hair slicked straight back. I wore uh, T-shirts. I rolled up Lucky Strikes in the sleeve. That's what I smoked at that time. I had practiced hanging them off my lip, just right. <laughs> so the way I went to college... I continued to drink in college. I never saw any reason not to. And uh, I'd stayed in a dorm my freshman year, and the roommate that they assigned to me slept in the lobby because she was afraid to come in the room. <laughs> I've always hoped that I would see her someday and make amends, but I'm not sure she'd stand still long enough for me to say what I needed to say to her. I, uh, anyway, so that's how I was in college. And I, went, I didn't go to class. I didn't go to class in high school. I saw no reason to go to class in college. I was just there to show that I could do it. 
And, but while I was in college, I had another one of those little turning points that turned out to be a real important turning point for me. Uh, I had this girl named Flo who used to stand in the hall and iron. And there was like nothing to do, so Flo would talk to me. She was like trapped there. I didn't have any friends, so there was somebody who was trapped there and they were willing to talk to me. I'd go talk to them and I'd sit there and smoke Lucky Strikes and we'd talk about philosophy and Flo would iron. And uh, one day Flo said, you know, she said, you're really puzzling. Uh, she said, you get good grades, but you don't ever seem to study. And uh, she said, you know, I think you're afraid to try. I'm not afraid of anything. She said, I think you're afraid to try. And she said, you know, I don't think anybody else needs to know, but I think you need to know. And she said, I think what you ought to do is, she said, why don't you just pick one paper or one project and really try hard and then find out what you can do. She said, secretly do it. Well, you know, it's pretty easy to do it secretly because my roommate wasn't in the room anyway. And uh, <clears throat> so what I did was I just like stuffed the towel under the door and secretly studied on this paper, you know, because she dared me. And uh, I, the paper was a paper on creativity. I, I absolutely can still in my mind's eye see that paper. It's in one of those blue filmy things that you look through. And as I wrote that paper, I found something wonderful. It was, I, I honestly believe it was the second most important thing I found in my life after booze. And that was, I found out that you could take these ideas, you could like read about these ideas, and you could put them out here, and you could make something with them. You could take those ideas and put them together and make something else. And it was absolutely awesome. And I found out that you could read about things and find out how they work. And uh, it was just, I felt like I'd found the key to the universe. And something important happened to me when I did that paper, because I just fell in love with learning. Uh, and that was when I decided I was going to stay at the university, because it was a wonderful place. I really liked it there. Now, I didn't quit stealing, and I didn't quit doing any of the things I'd been doing just because I was at the university. All I did was just decide to stay. I also have to tell you, I used to imagine that I suddenly you know, became this person who just loved learning. That's how it felt inside. A couple of years ago, I was invited back to that university to give an address, and I mentioned during that address about how I loved, learned to love learning. And two of my professors talked to me after the address, and they said, you didn't look that different. <laughs> So I was still sort of a marginal student, but I loved being there, and I decided to stay. And uh, so I did stay there, and I stayed one day at a time. And I'll tell you, you know, I didn't know how to major in things. I, I know today you're supposed to, like, pick a major, and you go through, and you finish your major, and you get out. That's what most people try to do in college. That's not what I was doing. What I did was if I took a class from somebody, if you were – oh, I went there for the first semester, and I majored in English because the English teacher is the one who sent me. Okay, that semester I had a professor in philosophy. And it was really interesting. So I majored in philosophy the next semester. And that semester I had a, a PE teacher, a tennis coach, who was just really nice to me. So I majored in PE the next semester. I just, you know, followed the interesting people and uh, took a lot of weird classes. And uh, even doing it that way, eventually, if you really like learning the way I did, they make you leave. <laughs> and that's graduation and you're supposed to be happy about it. And I did not want to leave. That was the most wonderful place I'd ever found. Now, I have to also tell you that during that time, I was getting in trouble with my drinking. There were people around me who were having trouble with my drinking and who were saying things about, like, why don't you just stop that? And you're getting into trouble. And how come you're doing that? And I know today that there were a lot of those people in my life who really wanted to help me. I know that they, they didn't understand what I was doing. It didn't make sense to them. It looked to them like I was destroying my life and that they wanted to help me. That is not how it sounded to me at the time. The way it sounded to me at the time was they were messing with me, they were interfering with me, they were in my face, and I wanted them to just leave me alone. Okay? All right, well, if you love college the way I did and they make you graduate, you'd be the only logical next thing. I went to graduate school, and I went to graduate school in another state because they offered me money to go there, so I went there and I studied there for a while, and 
I continued to take classes every day from the day I first went to college until the day I got sober. And I want you to know that I haven't found it necessary to take a class since I've been sober. <laughs> but I do teach at a university, and that might be cheating. I'm not really sure. I uh, uh, early on started having the kind of trouble that the big book describes. Um, I had... Uh, I was, uh, I went to, uh, as I said, I went to graduate school. After graduate school, I went to teach at a university up in Chicago, and uh, I was uh, still drinking at that time, and I was still drinking the same crummy bars that I'd been drinking in as a kid. And one of the problems I had was that no matter how many things I did, I mean, now I have this job, and I'm the youngest this and that, and I've published an article and all these things, and inside, I don't feel any different. I mean, inside, I still feel like a street punk. And... Uh, and, and every now and then it would feel like maybe they were going to find out. When it felt like they were going to find out, I would just leave and go somewhere else, get some other job, do something else. Um, I had, uh, right out of graduate school, got this job at this university. And at spring break, what they do at a university is people go away and they go somewhere. And people go places like they go skiing, they go to the mountains. I was in Chicago. Now, I'm from Arizona, and we didn't have all the stuff they had in Chicago. They had all night TV there. And so I rented a TV and I made this macaroni salad with a big bowl of it, which is something I knew how to make. And I got these hot dogs and I bought a case of whiskey and I started watching all night movies. And you could watch the movie and what I would do is I'd watch the movie and then I'd pass out or black out or whatever I was doing and then I'd sort of check back in. There'd be a different movie on. I'd watch part of that one. I'd, you know, I'd watch pieces of a whole bunch of movies that week. And uh, partway through the week, I ran out of booze. And I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's bad news. And I ran out in the daytime. And, I mean, you walk outside and it's just like being blinded, you know. I mean, the sun, they've turned the sun up about 400 watts, you know, just like, ah, you know. And uh, I went over and I got some more booze. And I stayed in that apartment for the rest of that time. And that was the only time I went out for the whole week. And at the end of spring break, I went back over to school. Now, what you do the day you come back from spring break is you stand around and talk about what you did spring break, Right. And so we're standing there, and they're going, you know, they went skiing, and they went to the beach, and they went to the mountains. And I remember standing there looking at those people and thinking, those sons of bitches just don't know how to relax. <laughs> you know, I think about that sometimes when I read in the big book where it says, we thought our drinking life was the only normal one, uh, because I certainly did think that. Uh, I left there because I went through a period where thing, it's like they were coming. I don't know who they were, but they were coming. It was getting bad. They were going to find out. And when I would feel that way, I would just leave and go somewhere else. And I would change jobs or I would change majors. I majored in a lot of different things. If you really like school the way I did and you keep doing that, you eventually end up with a bunch of degrees, and I did. Um, the last one is a Ph.D. They call it a terminal degree, and it means you're supposed to quit going to school. <laughs> uh, but I didn't. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as a direct result of my alcoholism, I have all these degrees today. I'm not sure that I know a lot, but I have a lot of degrees. And, uh, and I, even the degrees that I have, I took a whole lot more courses than you're supposed to have to get those. And my husband later asked me one time why I felt it necessary to find out everything that had ever been known. And uh, I don't know, I was just looking for something. And I think part of that was I was really looking for something. I was looking for an answer. I did not know what was the matter with me. I knew there was something terribly wrong with my life, and I didn't know what it was. And I would get puzzled by that. I remember one night I was in a bar, and... I had this, you know, when you run like I did, you end up with these kind of really good jobs and really bad jobs. And uh, I was in one of my really good jobs. I was directing this agency, and uh, I went out, and I was still going to these little sleazy bars at night where the cops come through the front, and you go out the bathroom window, and those kind of bars, and they fight with broken beer bottles. 
And uh, and I had been through one of those that night, and I got home, and I thought, you know, this is so, you know, I talked to myself, and I said, you are so stupid. I mean, you cannot, what if you'd, what if the cops had gotten you tonight? I mean, it'd be headlines in the paper, and you'd be, and then it'd ruin your life, and your job would be over, and you'd never have anything good again, and why do you keep going to those places? You know, and I didn't know. I thought, I'm just crazy. I don't know why. I'm just nuts. I don't know what it is, you know, and I would decide not to drink, and I'd be drinking, and I didn't know what that was about. Um, and, I, you know, I just didn't know what was wrong with me. And I didn't, the thing that really puzzled me was when I would go through periods of stopping drinking, which I periodically did for some reason, usually somebody was supplying some kind of heat. And when I would go through those periods, things would get gradually worse. And they would get so bad that it seemed like I had to drink in order to relieve the way I felt inside. It was like that madness would just come back. And there was nothing on the outside that happened to me that was worse than what was happening to me on the inside. And I would drink again. And it just didn't make any difference. And there were times when I drank and I didn't mean to. I just, I remember one of my non-drinking periods was when I was directing this agency. And, and I knew I couldn't drink because even at that time I knew that if I took a drink I didn't know what was going to happen next. It was a long time before I got to you, but I knew I was, it was real unpredictable. I couldn't just like take a drink. Sometimes I could, sometimes I couldn't. I just didn't know. And I had a board meeting that day, and that board meeting was like at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, which is a long time from when you get up. And uh, I knew that I couldn't take a drink because I might go to the board meeting. I might not even know what would happen. And so I knew I couldn't. And I remember telling myself, I'd get up in the morning, every morning, and I'd talk to myself. And I'd go, listen, you sleazeball, don't drink. You cannot have a drink today. This is important. You have a board meeting. You cannot drink. Just don't take a drink, no matter what, all day long. Just stay at work. Don't have a drink. Okay, but the other problem I had was I would also have, right behind that would come this feeling like today's the day they're going to find out. Today's the day I'm going to go in that board meeting and they're going to look at me and they're going to go, we thought you were our executive director, but really you're a street punk. We just found out who you are and we want you to get out of here. And I think, how can I feel okay enough to get through that board meeting? I thought, well, I'll go to this really nice French restaurant and they'll speak French to me and they'll treat me really nice and they have this fancy food and the butter's cut like a rosebud or something and I'll feel good. I'll feel like a rich person and I'll feel good and I'll just hang on to that feeling until the board meeting and that's how I'll get it through the board meeting. And I went in there and I knew I couldn't have a drink. I knew I knew I couldn't have a drink. And I don't remember ordering a drink. I do not remember it. But what I remember is hearing the glass hit the table. And I did something that for me is my downfall. I went, oh, what the hell? Okay. And then I had a bunch of drinks. I don't know how many because I had some kind of little mini blackout. And the next thing I know, I'm in the board meeting. I've been talking, apparently. <laughs> and I remember coming to myself in that board meeting and going, uh-oh. <laughs> and I thought, I'll sit really still, and then I won't look drunk. I don't know what that was about either. I used to have these little brainstorms like that. Did you? Some of you had some, too. I'll tell you, one of the ones I had one time, this was really weird. I'm in Chicago, big city, right? Lots of traffic, lots of cars, lots of streets. Now, I would get drunk and drive. I was not one of those who said, oh, thank you, you, you drive. I thought I drove better drunk. And I would do, you know, some of you did that. You do this and they sort of line up. And I had this idea that cold would keep you driving better. I'd hang my head out the window. And uh, this one night, I just couldn't quite get all the lights to line up of the car in front of me. I just... And I thought, well, I'll just get right between the lights, and I'll just stay behind that guy, and then I'll be okay. So I'm just staying behind that guy. Now, I don't know why I thought that guy was going where I was going, you know. It might be part of my self-centeredness, but I'm just lined up behind the lights, and the lights went out. <laughs> so I stopped, and I, while I was thinking over what to do about that, I seemed to have 
passed out. And uh, when I came to, I was sitting in his driveway. <laughs> I just followed the guy home, apparently. Um, anyway, so my brainstorms are about that good, and my brainstorms in sobriety are about that good, too. And uh, anyway, so I, I was just really having a hard time. I was just really, really having a hard time, and I didn't know what was going on. And I had, like, all these lives going on. You know, I had this bar, this slimy bar of life at night, and I had this good job going in the daytime, and I'm trying to just keep that all going. And I remember one time walking down the street with the president of the board of my nice day job, and here comes one of the slime balls from my leather bars <laughs> walking down Oh, yeah, I'm like, oh, man, you know, don't talk, don't speak, you know, yeah, I don't know, I just kind of go, you know, try to make my face look different, like they won't recognize me, you know, and sure enough, we got by, and they just walked on by, you know, and the thing I think strange today is that it wasn't just that I didn't want the president of the board to see that I knew the slime ball, I did not want the slime ball to know that I hung out with lame people like the president of the board either, you know, <laughs> I just needed it all to stay separate, and so shortly after that, I left, and I moved again, and I kept doing that, it was what I think of as my get a grip period. I was always just going to get a grip. In just a minute, I'm going to get a grip. In just a minute, I'm going to be okay. If I just go over there, it'll be all right. Whatever's wrong with me, it's just, it's them, it's this, it's, it's because I'm in the mountains, it's because I'm not in the mountains, you know, whatever it was. And uh, my last run, I ran to Texas, to graduate school, of course. And uh, while I was there, something happened to me that I didn't know would happen. And that is that alcohol quit working for me. And I don't mean it quit working. Like, it had already been unpredictable. What happened to me in Texas was that I would take a drink. Sometimes I would just stay sober. I mean, I would, my, my body would get drunk, but it wouldn't push the madness away anymore. And I would keep drinking, and it wouldn't push the madness away. And what I didn't understand was I would take a drink, and even if it wasn't working, I would have to keep drinking. Um, I, just, it just didn't, I just didn't know what that was. I didn't know what was wrong, and it was the most desperate feeling I can remember uh, and shortly after that happened, I got to a place where I couldn't read anymore. I couldn't do that thing I was telling you about where I could make things with ideas. I couldn't even hold on to a whole sentence long enough to think about it. I'd read through the sentence, and by the time I got to the next sentence, I'd lost that sentence. And, you know, it was like the two things that I had the most that were keeping me alive were gone. And the way I thought about that, because of the way my mind was at that time, I thought that was God. And I was hanging out with this woman who told me that. Um, she was, uh, Texas is uh, kind of a religious place, and this person was a very religious person. And she said, you know, God just hates you because of the way you are and the people you sleep with, and he's punishing you. And I, I thought, I mean, I couldn't imagine. And I, I, I thought that's how it felt. It felt like a cat and mouse, like, here you go. Oops, take it away. And I said, okay, fine. So I met a guy, and I married him. I figured that would take care of it. God doesn't like the fact that I'm sleeping around and who I'm sleeping with. I'll just marry this guy. And uh, we knew each other for three weeks. <laughs> Seemed like a long time. As a friend of mine says, one year in an alcoholic's life is seven years in a normal life. So it was a fairly long time. And we got married. And, uh, you know, I don't know what he was doing. All I wanted to do was get married and get God off my ass. So I was a little surprised when he was there <laughs> the next day. <laughs> I was like why don't you go away? And he was like, oh, well, we're married. I was like, damn, you know, I never got that far. I just got to getting married. And uh, we spent seven years going, you know, the trouble is whatever, some this, that, something else. And uh, at one point, um, and I was trying not to drink, and he, you know, he said to me one day, and he was absolutely right. He said, you know, you have a non-drinking problem. He said, you're bad when you don't drink. Can't you just learn to drink reasonably? I don't know why they ask us that. We are being reasonable. <laughs> and uh, 
Anyway, we did that, and at one point I got pregnant. Um, well, not by myself, but... Uh, and I, I did not know what that was about. I promise you there wasn't one day up until then that I thought, I believe I'll have a baby. And um, it turns out being a bad mother is not good birth control. Uh, and there I was, pregnant. And I was really afraid, and I thought that baby was going to be born. I thought, I'll hurt him, you know, or I won't care about him. I'll just leave him somewhere or something. And when that baby was born, it was a real surprise to me because for the first time in my life, I absolutely loved something. I just, it was just like a laser beam going from my heart to his. I'd never loved anybody with such a pure love in my whole life. And now I had a new problem because I didn't want him to have a mother like me. You know, and every night I'd put that baby to bed and I'd look at him and I'd think, I'm so sorry you got me for a mother. And, uh, you know, I had such a violent temper. I'd been a real violent person. I'd been from a violent neighborhood and a violent family. And whenever I got mad, I'd just hand him to somebody and say, here, please take this baby. Because I was so afraid I'd hurt him. And I'll tell you, I did hurt him. I'm so, I so regret that still. And I started to get really desperate in that time. I didn't know what to do. So the first thing I did was get rid of the husband. That seemed like a good plan. Get him out of there, you know. And, uh, then, and then I just started doing stuff, just trying stuff. And by this time, I had these voices in my mind. And I, I thought it was God. I mean, this is so bizarre. And I just had this a deal. I cut a deal with what I thought was God. And, and uh, the deal was that I would try everything I hadn't tried and prove it didn't work. And then I could kill myself. I just needed off the planet. And I was sure that my son would be better off. And uh, what I did was I got this woman to move in with me because I didn't tell her this, but my plan was that she would get attached to my son and that way when I died she'd take care of him and I put it in my will so she'd feel guilty and do it. <laughs> then I went out and charged a bunch of stuff because, hey, I'm not going to be around to pay it off anyway. I got some bad loans, I'll tell you, really bad. And then I got sober and I had to pay them all off. I had the, the most expensive Volkswagen in the history of America, I think, because all I wanted was a low payment. I didn't care how long I had to pay on it because I wasn't going to be around. And I paid on that sucker. I could have bought four Volkswagens for what I paid for that. But, and then I started doing stuff and to prove it didn't work. That was part of the deal. I was going to do whatever I needed to do and prove it didn't work and get out of here. So during that time, somebody said to me, this friend of mine's mother was in the program. And she said, uh, you know, I think you ought to go to um, ACA. I said, okay, how long do you have to go? She said, six times. I said, fine. So I went six times. Somebody else told me I ought to go to a shrink, so I went to the shrink. Shrink was on campus. I went to get him because he was free. Turns out he was just there that one year, and he specialized in alcoholism, and I didn't know that. And I don't remember the order of all these things because they get all mixed up in my mind. But at some point in that ACA thing, this person came up to me, and she said, I want to give you this tape. And I didn't know what an AA tape was, and I sure wasn't going to ask anybody. What I do when I don't know something is pretend like I know it. And uh, so uh, I took that tape, and, I, you know, I thought it was probably a, like a lecture, like the stuff everybody else does to try to get you to keep, quit drinking, you know, a little telling you the evils of alcohol or, you know, why don't you just shape up or why don't you drink reasonably or all those things I'd heard before, and I didn't want to hear it. So I stood in the back of my car. Now, the other thing about me, though, is I don't do well when I don't know something, you know. I mean, I need to know. So I'd get in the car, and I'd think, I wonder what's on that tape. And I'd think, oh, well, I don't care. I'm not listening to it. Oh, yeah, but I wonder what's on that tape, you know. And after a while, I couldn't stand it anymore. I took that tape and plugged it in my tape player. And it was a woman named June G. And she, I'd never heard anybody so much like me. I mean, she'd been where I'd been. She'd done the things that I had done. She had felt the way I had felt. And on that tape, she said that what was wrong with her was she was an alcoholic. And that she had come to you and that you had helped her. And she said at the end of that tape, 
that she wanted to be the way she was. She wanted to feel the way she felt. She wanted to look the way she looked. And she wanted to be herself. And at the beginning of that tape, she said she couldn't have hated herself anymore. And that was exactly the way I felt. And I thought, if this thing worked for her, maybe it would work for me. And I thought, you know, if she's an alcoholic, maybe I'm an alcoholic. I didn't really think so. I really didn't think so because I knew alcoholics were people who had trouble with drinking. And when you quit drinking, you got better. And when I quit drinking, I got worse. And it turns out that is alcoholism. People who get better when they quit drinking just quit drinking and are better. They don't have to go to these stupid meetings. <laughs> Those of us who can't live with sobriety are the ones who have to come here and find another way to live so that we can eventually live without drinking. And uh, I heard that tape and I just thought, I mean, it just opened up just a little bit of a door in my mind. It wasn't like I went, oh, yeah, so I think I'll go to AA and get better. It was like just a little bit of a, huh, I wonder if that could be it. I mean, I was so desperate I would have tried anything. And so I went to some AA meetings and I eventually got a chip. I want you to know that when I got that chip, I did not tell you. I didn't hug anybody. But what I heard them say, and they probably didn't say this, but what I heard was they would hold up this chip and they would say, does anybody want a chip to stay sober for 24 hours? See, in my mind was so blown, I'd sit there and I'd go, it's like Krypton. You know, you got to get the chip, you get the Krypton, and you don't have to drink. They didn't say, would anybody like to come up here, tell us your name, give us a hug, get the Krypton. You know, they just said, you want a chip to stay sober. So I knew I had to get the little chip thing, uh, but that was all I was after. So I went up and I took the chip and I stuffed it in my pocket and I sat down. That was how I started my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I had, uh, and I have had a lot of adventures since I've been here. I think some of it has to do with my attitude when I got here. You have a lot of adventures when you are the way I am and, and you see the world the way I saw it. Um, early sobriety was very difficult for me. It was very difficult. And I tried to make it difficult for as many people around me as I could. Um, I remember I used to go to the meetings and I would sit there. And I, I have never understood this because I was so desperate that it doesn't seem like I would have been trying to push people away, but that's what I was doing. And I would sit there, and I would glare at people, and they would just kind of move back, and I'd have, like, this whole little area of my own. And uh, one day I was sitting there, but then when the meeting would be over, I wouldn't want to leave. I mean, I can remember I'd sit there, and the meeting would start to get over, and I'd be going, oh, man, the meeting's over. They'd stand up, and they'd get ready to say the Our Father, and I'd think, oh, man, they're going to leave. We're going to have to leave now. I mean, the meeting's almost over. We're going to have to go. And I'd start to feel this just kind of panic inside. And so I'd stay as long as I could. And the way I stayed was I would sit back in this corner and have this barricade of chairs, and I'd watch them. And I'd just glare at them and watch them. But what I was doing was I was going, oh, man, now those guys are leaving. Now there's only five of them left. And the minute those five are going to leave, and then what are we going to do, you know? And one day this little tiny woman, who should have been afraid of me, walked right up, got right in my face, and said, I'm going to tell you something. I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> I thought, what kind of weird place is this, you know? And... Uh, and there were people who were afraid of me. Uh, and uh, I, at the time, I thought it was good. When I was six months sober, a woman came up to me and said, you know, I was afraid of you when I first got here. And I said, good. And she didn't talk to me for another six months. <laughs> My sponsor told me uh, that I was going to get to be the person I always wanted to be. I told her I always wanted to be James Dean. She said, in my case, God would make me the person I was supposed to be, and then I would find out that's who I wanted to be. <laughs> and uh, oddly enough, that's pretty much what's happened. Um, I don't want to be James Dean today, and I don't want to scare anybody. Um, I worked the steps, and I did all the things that you're supposed to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to tell you a little bit about some of the things that happened to me. I had that ex-husband who I did not like, who I referred to as my son's ex-father. And uh, my sponsor made me stop that. Then she made me let him in when he came over to get his son. I thought he should wait on the porch. 
And then I had to make amends, and then I had to give back all his stuff I kept. And, I mean, you know, they make really ridiculous demands on you in this place just to stay sober. And, and the way we did things was we would go to, say, a thing at school. And he'd go down one side, and I'd go down the other side. And then at the end of the meeting, we would, you know, whoever was supposed to get the kid, we'd meet and hand off the kid. And that was how we did it. And uh, one day we were doing that, and I, went, I saw him go down over here, so I was going down over here. And I thought, you know, this is just too much trouble. This is just, this takes too much energy to do this. And so I went back over on the side where he was, and I ended up, there was one seat left down there. It was right next to him, and I sat down. And after that was over, he started asking me about his son, and I told him everything he wanted to know. We walked around for about an hour and a half, and I answered all of his questions. And then when he'd come and get him, he'd come in and we'd talk. You know, and we'd, and he, he was in graduate school, and I know about that, so we would talk about that. And my son would be going, come on, I want to go, he's here for me. And we're like, just a minute, just a minute. And uh, we got to be really good friends, um, and I really liked him, and and uh, and I and he got to be a lot more a part of his son's life. And uh, when I was, uh, guess about six years sober, the day after my sixth birthday in AA, he suddenly died. And you know it's funny because one of the things that had happened to me in AA was I would sit in the meetings and I would listen to people, and they'd say, "Well, I drank so I wouldn't have to feel." And I would think to myself, that wasn't quite it for me. I mean, I, it was more than just feeling. It was like this insanity. Um, but I thought maybe the insanity comes with the feelings. Maybe if you have feelings, the insanity comes right behind it. And I did not want to have feelings anyway and was trying very hard not to have them. And when he died, there's no not feeling over something like that. You know, it was so sudden and it was such a shock and it was such a deal for my son. And I had lost my friend. And it was like just this overwhelming sadness and grief. And what I found out was that's all it was. There was no insanity that came behind that. I just felt sad. And I just felt a loss. And I found out you can just go through those feelings and you come out the other side. And, you know, today sometimes I still feel a little bit sad about that. But it's not, it doesn't just take me anywhere. And that madness didn't come back. And it never has come back. And what I found out that time was Alcoholics Anonymous does for me what booze used to do, only it does it longer and better and more permanently. It takes all that madness away. It's gone. It's taken it away. The steps and you guys and the things you've taught me have done that. My son was six when I got sober, and uh, he and I, and I, as I said, I had to learn a lot of things about being a mother, and you taught me how to be a mother, and we were rocking along, and we were doing okay, and I had made a lot of amends to him, living amends, and done those kinds of things. And uh, when he hit um, about 13... It was like we were in this house, and there was like plexiglass between us. Just, you know, eight feet of plexiglass. And I didn't understand, and I would try to talk to my sponsor. My sponsor doesn't have a teenager. My sponsor has little kids. And she would say, I don't have that experience. Go talk to somebody who's got the experience. Well, there was a friend of mine in Al-Anon who had raised teenagers, taught high school, and had teenage grandchildren. I figured she'd be a pretty good source. But she hadn't lived the way I had lived. And see, what she didn't know was, and what nobody knew was, I still had this whole thing going with him. I was scared to death he was going to find out what kind of person I had been. I was scared to death he was going to find out I'd been a street punk. I did not want him to know that. And I'm living in this middle-class house with this grass, hoping he doesn't remember very much and hoping that he believes that we're just like part of this middle-class neighborhood. And I didn't want him to know. And uh, I didn't know that that was a problem, and she didn't know to ask me about it. I just kept saying, there's something wrong, and they both kept saying, well, you know, just wait. But my sponsor taught me a prayer. You know how they say in AA, if the, teacher is, if the student is ready, the teacher will appear? Well, my sponsor taught me that I could ask to be a ready student. 
And so I kept asking to be a ready student. And one day I went to a conference. Um, it was like in January or something. And I want you to know the December before that conference, a friend of mine took my son out and helped him pick out a Christmas present for me. And he came home and threw it at me. I went to this conference in January, and the Friday night speaker was talking about her teenage kid. And I thought, she wasn't talking about what I was talking about. There's something she said that made me think she might understand. And I asked her if I could talk to her, and she said yes. And uh, I started talking to her, and she said, uh, she said, tell me about the amends you made to your son. And I said, well, you know, I'm doing these, all these living amends that I've been doing his whole life. She said, wait just a minute. Living amends? She said, living amends is what we make after we make direct amends. Tell me about the direct amends you made to him. She said, what does he know about your life? And I said, well, you know, not much. I mean, there's like one or two big things he knows, you know, and I wanted to get credit for those, so I made sure to tell her about that. She said, uh, you're, she said does he know, what else does he know? I said, nothing. I said, I'm so afraid he's going to find out. She said, you've got to tell him. I said, no, 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 I can't tell him. I don't want him to know. I mean, that's the whole point. I've got this whole thing arranged so he won't find out. She said, you've got to tell him. And she said, if you don't, you're going to lose him forever. And she said, he may hate you for a while. You'll just have to live with that. But she said, this is a third step problem. How dare you decide that there's a part of your life that's unacceptable? She said, either you turned your life over to God or you didn't. So I went home. Well, first I wrote a letter to my sponsor. I told her everything the woman had told me because I knew the way my mind works. By Monday, I would have changed everything she said into something else. So I wrote down what she said, mailed it to my sponsor. I'll tell you, one of my babies was at that conference, and she went with me over to give it to the clerk to mail. And I gave it to the clerk, and the clerk turned around, and I went, wait just a minute. My baby looks at me like this, and I went, oh, never mind. Go ahead and mail it, you know. And uh, so I got home. I thought, well, I'll call my sponsor. In a couple of weeks, you know, I'll make this amends, and... These were people my sponsor knows and admires very much. And I was, uh, got home Sunday night. He had to get some from Walmart. We're driving over to Walmart. And I thought, you know, I'm going to call June. And she's going to say, I think you ought to do what they said. <laughs> they have experience. I know. And I think you ought to do what they said. I said, no, I know that's what she's going to say. And I thought, I'm just going to do it. And I'll tell you, I thought my heart was going to come out of my chest. And I said to him, I said, uh, I said what they told me to say. I said, I owe you an amends for keeping you out of my life. And I'm willing to tell you anything you want to know. And I said, you know, I could either just kind of run over the high points, or in my case, the low points, or I could uh, give you a tape. That was my idea. I threw that in. (laughs) Or you could just ask me questions. And he said, why don't you just start talking? Oh, I thought my heart was going to break. I mean, I absolutely thought my heart was going to break. And so I did. He was in the back seat, and I couldn't see him. And when I got finished talking, there was just this silence that seemed like it lasted forever. And then he said, you know, Mom, I knew your life couldn't be as bland as what I knew about it. Why would they keep asking you to go talk in these AA meetings? (laughs) And then he just started asking me a whole bunch of questions. I mean, he wanted to know what was it like to smoke grass and, you know, are the lights really more vivid? And he just wanted to know, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, we had this great conversation. I mean, it was incredible. And then we'd go home and we'd shoot baskets and talk. And we did that every night for a long time. And uh, on Valentine's Day last year, he asked me to take him to get um, flowers for somebody. He wouldn't say who. And, uh, and he went in this one shop, and their flowers weren't good enough. And we had to go to another shop, and he went in there. And he came out, and I, I thought he had this girlfriend. I figured that's who he's getting the flowers for. And he came out, and he had two pink carnations wrapped up in paper with little ribbons around them. I thought, oh, my God, he's got two girlfriends. <laughs> Today I have learned that that's better than one. <laughs> 
Um, but that wasn't it. He handed one of them to me, and he said, Mom, this is for you. And that's a long ways from the kid who threw a Christmas present at me. And we have a relationship today that is just one of the neatest things in my life because we can talk about anything, and I don't have that feeling anymore like he's going to find out something and he's going to hate me because there's nothing left for him to find out. I mean, he knows all of it. And that's a precious thing. My son celebrated a year in Alateen last summer. I know you have Alateens here, and I want to tell you thank you very much for the gift you've given him. And I'll tell you, you know, the person who gave me the tape that got me to AA is his Alateen sponsor. I mean, it's just something so cool about that. I hate that I'm all emotional, but I have learned I have to let that happen. I'll tell you how I learned that. I had, I told you when I came here, I had some values. And one of my values was that I was not going to do anything that I considered weak. And I think the reason that I was so, um, that was so important to me was because I knew that deep down inside I was a weak person. And I didn't want anybody to ever find that out. I used to practice looking tough so that you wouldn't know. And uh, last summer, I was, and my sponsor, when I was about four and a half years sober, June talked to me. In fact, the first thing she ever, the first contact she and I ever had was she wrote me a letter about the difference between being strong and being tough. I had no idea what that letter meant. I had not a clue. I used to get it out and read it and go, I have no idea what this woman is talking about. When I was four and a half years sober, I was talking to her, and she said, you know, you're going to have to make a decision whether you'd like to be tough and drunk or sober and vulnerable. I was like, what's the third choice? You know, I don't like either one of those. Um, But it was really, really hard for me to imagine going around in the world the way she seemed to be suggesting that I do. And I sort of found a way to get out of it. And uh, last year, I go to this conference every summer in Crested Butte, Colorado. And last summer, I was up at that conference. And uh, we went whitewater rafting, you know, which is like raging water over big rocks. I don't know why we do these things, but we just, we're going to do this. And... I got in that boat, and I had convinced all the other people to go with me. Most of them were Al-Anons, and you, you can get them to go with you if you just talk a little bit. And I got them all to go, and they're all in the boat. I was talking to a friend of mine who's in Al-Anon, and she said, uh, my, my friend in Al-Anon, the one I was talking to about my kid, she was saying, she's over there going, nothing better happened to them because she sponsored most of them. Another friend of mine in Al-Anon said later she should have been talking to them going, quit following alcoholics. But anyway, so we're on the boat, so I feel responsible for them all. So I'm in the worst seat, the seat you get pitched out of. And sure enough, I got pitched out of that. And I'll tell you, that water is very cold, and there are very big hard rocks in there. And you don't just, like, fall out. You just, I didn't anyway. It's like the boat went like this, and I went, pew. It's like you're shot out, you know. And next thing you know, you are in that damn water. And if you get too far from the boat, they can't get you back. And I was furious. I was so angry. And they get me back in the boat and they're going, are you okay? I'm like, yes, I'm fine. And I planted my foot in that boat and I said, I'm not going out of this boat again. 30 seconds later, out of the boat, you know. (coughs) Shows you what good willpower is. And I was furious. I was so angry that I couldn't even speak. Even I knew that was a little bit of an overreaction. The next day we're fishing. I love to fish, and I'm out there, and I'm fishing on this lake, and they got big fish in this lake, and those fish, I mean, I, I, I had that fish, I had them, this happened to me four times in a row, I'm reeling the fish in, I get like to about five feet from the boat, and the fish goes, <laughs> the fourth time that happened, I went ballistic, I had the oar, I turned, I said, I'm going to get in the water, find that fish, and beat the shit out of it, 
and I looked around, and my fishing partner's sitting there going like this. And I've seen that look on people's faces, and I told you I didn't ever want to scare anybody again, and I have now scared her to death. So I started playing like I was joking. It was too late for that. And I thought, I thought I'm overreacting a little bit again, you know. And then the next day something else happened and I did the same thing. I thought, this is crazy. So I called, and that time I was like, I couldn't get back. I was furious. I was just so enraged. So I called my sponsor and I said, June, I don't know what's the matter with me, but you know, here's what's going on. And she said, okay, in the first place, most people who get pitched into raging cold water with big rocks would be scared, not mad. She said, you need a wider range of emotion. Anger will not work for all occasions, you know. (laughs) And she said, the other thing she said, and you know, before, for about six months before that conference, I had been having this weird experience, which I had not told anyone about. And it was this kind of an experience. I'd be driving along and I'd think, you know, I'm probably really not an alcoholic. I probably, I just probably had a lot of problems. And I'll bet I could drink. And I'd think, don't be silly. You know, just, and those little thoughts were running through my mind. And I didn't say anything to anybody because they were just little thoughts running through my mind. And because I'd always heard that the ninth year is a hard year. And I thought, well, this is just that. It's just the ninth year being a hard year. That's all. This must be what they were talking about. And uh, when I was talking to June that day, the other thing she said to me was, she said, you know, the closest I ever came to drinking was over trying to control my emotions like you're doing. And she said, I think you're just out of time on that. And when she said that, I realized that that stuff wasn't just, oh, I'm having a hard ninth year. I was real close to drinking. And it absolutely scared me to death. And I said, what do I do? And I would do anything. And she said, go down to the conference and cry. <laughs> I was like, could we find something else to do? <laughs> you know? I know, that's it. So I went down there and I didn't cry then. I was willing to. I just didn't. And uh, But that night I had to chair the meeting. And we have like 700 people sitting in a room like this. And I'm up at a podium like this chairing the meeting. And my friend Sharon B. was talking. And Sharon's story, she's one of those people that when she tells her story, I mean, I know how it turns out. She's speaking in an AA meeting. But I get so caught in her story and I just think, God, I hope she's going to make it. You know, I hope she'll be all right. And I just get caught in her story. And, I was, and she was talking and all of a sudden tears just start coming down my face. And I think, oh, great. I'm going to cry in front of 700 people, including my tough friend from Oregon who thinks I'm macho. Great. She won't be my friend anymore, and everybody here is going to know I'm a weakling. And I thought, I don't care. If that's what it takes to not drink, fine, I'll cry. No problem. You know, I cried, and nothing terrible happened. And I don't know what's happened since then. I'll tell you one other time somebody did something that hurt me very deeply, and my immediate reaction was, I don't care. Didn't want it anyway. No problem. I'm fine. And as soon as I did that, it was like everything just closed down again. But I can also tell you, and I don't know what this has to do with anything, but since that experience, since I quit doing that and quit controlling those emotions and became what my sponsor told me that day, she said, you're going to have to be something you've hated your whole life. You're going to have to be a sober wimp. Oh. And that's what's happened. I mean, you could hear me tonight. My voice is catching. Now, the other bad news is a week before that, I had heard a tape of my sponsor, and she cried through the whole tape, and I had called her and said, God, June, you cried through the whole tape, you know. So now I'm getting to do this. Anyway, um, since that happened, a funny thing has happened to me. It's like all the stuff between me and everybody has been removed. Um, I have uh, somebody that I love very much that I all of a sudden can really love. 
I don't know how to say that. I thought I loved that person before, but all of a sudden, I can really love. And my son, who I know I have loved his whole life, all of a sudden, I'm just really there with him in the room. I'm just right there with him. You know, I teach at a university, and I have had a lot of trouble with teaching, you can imagine, with the kind of person I have been. And this semester, there was something very different about that. It was like I was just right there with them, just right with the students, and I could see them one at a time, who they were, and I could think about them and what they needed. And I got the best teaching evaluations I've ever gotten in my life this semester. And I wasn't doing it to get good evaluations. I was doing it because I would walk in the room, and there we were. And I don't know what that has to do with that thing about the emotions, but it seems to have something to do with it. I want to tell you one more story, and then I'll I'll sit down. It's an important story to me. Uh, because it's something that I didn't hear talked about a lot in AA. I was, when I was about three and a half years sober, it seemed to me that AA suddenly quit working. It seemed to me that it was like everything else, that it works for a little while and then it runs out. And it really scared me because it was the last thing I had left to try. When I was early sober, people used to say to me, because yeah, I scared them, I think, and they would say, you know, you're really screwed up. You ought to go to therapy. And I would tell them that I didn't want therapy, that I came to AA because I wanted AA. And if AA wasn't going to work for somebody like me, then I might as well just cancel right now. And, you know, the thing is, every time I would go to a meeting, they would read that part of the big book, and it said, even those of us with grave emotional problems found that we could get well by using these simple tools or however it says that. And I would listen to that, and I would think, they're telling me that this program will work for me, and I'm going to stay here, and it's going to work. And when I was three and a half years sober, it suddenly felt like it wasn't working anymore. And I did not know what to do. The first thing I did was I got rid of my sponsor. That's a really good plan. Get rid of the only person who's trying to help you. Get them out of there, you know. That's what I did. And I went through a series of sort of sponsors of the day, you know. You'd speak in my home group. I'd ask you to sponsor me and never call you, you know. And I sat at home and thought things through and tried to figure out what was wrong. Now, I still went to meetings. I still sponsored people. I still said yes to AA requests. I still made coffee. I still did all those things. In fact, I did it more. I did it harder. It didn't seem to be working. And finally, I decided that I was just going to kill myself. I mean, I called one person in AA, and she said, you know, you're just too screwed up for AA, and you're going to have to get more help. You need to go to therapy. Well, I decided that day after she told me that, that if I was too screwed up for AA, I was just going to kill myself. And I went to one more meeting. I'm so glad one more meeting has saved my life so many times. And at that meeting was that sponsor that I had fired. And she said, what's the matter with you? <laughs> and I said, I, this thing isn't working. It isn't going to work for somebody like me. I'm too screwed up, and I'm going to go home and kill myself. She said, before you kill yourself, why don't you call June and ask her if AA is enough? And I, June was the person whose tape had gotten me to AA. And so I went home, and I called her. Now, she didn't know me from Adam, you know. But I called her up, and she answered the phone. And she's got a husband and a job and, I think, one kid at that time and I mean, she's got a life. She's got stuff to do. A complete stranger calls from Fort Worth. And I said, this is Cherry in Fort Worth, Texas. And I'm fixing to kill myself, and I want to know if AA works. And she said, if you're going to kill yourself, I'm going to hang up. <laughs> but if you promise not to kill yourself, I'll share my experience, strength, and hope with you. And she talked to me like she didn't have another thing to do. And she talked to me for a long time. She told me a story about a pony, and she told me some other stories. And, and then she said, I'm going to tell you something. She said, you do not have deep psychological problems. She said, what is wrong with you is you are selfish and self-centered and self-seeking. That's all that's wrong with you. And she said, I'm going to give you a little rule of thumb for that. She said, it doesn't mean you think well of yourself. It doesn't even mean you think of yourself often. It means that's all you think about. (laughs) Now, I did not think that was true. (laughs) I would much rather be crazy 
than selfish. And so, but I had asked her for help, and I had been trained that if you ask somebody for help, you just do what they say. And she said, here's what I want you to do. She said, I want you to go to the hospital, see somebody, whether you know them or not. Go to a nursing home, visit somebody, whether you know them or not. Go to the meeting, and instead of seeing what you can get, see what you can give. Find out somebody who's sick. Go by their house, wash their dishes. Find somebody in the meeting who's short on money. Slip them money when they're not looking. She said, I want you to do nothing but do things for other people for the next three and a half days and then call me back. Now, I wrote down the things she told me to do because I was going to do them because it was such a lame thing for her to tell me to do. I knew it wouldn't work. So I was going to do it and prove it didn't work and then call her back and let her know. And I did those things intensively for three and a half days. And at the end of three and a half days, I was fine. My deep psychological problems had been cured. (laughs) And it was a real important day because I found out a couple of things. I found out that there are some people, very well-meaning, very well-intentioned, frightened people in Alcoholics Anonymous who have no idea the power of this program. And I also found out that there is only really one thing wrong with me. I'm really not crazy. It turns out self-centeredness feels a lot like insanity. It, It has a much simpler cure, but I don't like the cure because it requires that I quit thinking about myself momentarily and go think about somebody else. But it turns out that's really all that it takes. I mean, that really is all I need. And that was incredibly important information to me. Um, She became my sponsor, and she's been my sponsor, and she's absolutely saved my life. And there's a couple of things that have happened to me. One is that when I call her, I cannot say, well, she doesn't understand because she's been everywhere I've been and then some. And the other thing is that I made a decision when I call her. I tell her the truth and I do what she says. And I just don't question it. I just do whatever she tells me to do. And as as you've heard, she's told me to do some lame stuff, like go cry. You know, but I just do it. Um, In the last two years, I have had the most incredible experience in AA. I mean, it's just been amazing. And part of it is, you know, I used to wake up in the morning and I'd go, oh, shit, I'm still here. And today I wake up in the morning and I feel like I have everything I need for the day. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. It's like, I'm enough. I have everything I need for the day. It'll all be okay. And if something comes along that I don't personally have enough on me at the time, I have a whole room full of people, one of whom will have always had an experience and will share something with me and I'll know how to do it and I'll know how to get through the day. You've given me an understanding of a power greater than myself that I never thought would happen. I was a real hard sell on that one. I held out as long as I could. Um, and what I have come to understand is, you know, they have that song about looking for love in all the wrong places. I was looking for God in all the wrong places. And I was looking for the wrong kind of God. 